Good morning. Good to see you all. Let's go ahead and begin class with prayer. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you for your love, for your mercy, for watching over us, for the way you're leading in our lives. We ask that your Holy Spirit will join us as we study this morning, that we can draw closer to you and become more effective in sharing life-changing truths with people around us. We pray in your holy name. Amen. We're doing lesson 10 today in the quarterly God's Mission, My Mission, and the title of the lesson is Mission to the Unreached, Part 1. But before we actually get into Lesson 10, I wanted to follow up with something from Lesson 9, and that was from Tuesday's lesson last week. And uh, the title for that lesson, that day's lesson, was Witnessing to the Learned Nicodemus. And I wanted to just follow up and talk about that. When we listen, witness to the learned, those who are considered by themselves, and others to be subject matter experts, what are the keys to witnessing to them? And one of the keys is to to introduce something we call cognitive dissonance. And and this can occur from several approaches. Cognitive dissonance is, is an interest or an intrigue or something that unsettles their current understanding. And one is to present some new or positive, something new or positive that intrigues them in, with such uh, intensity that they are motivated to, to dig in and examine something from a new angle or incorporate something that they haven't considered before in a positive way. Another approach is to present evidences or questions that do not fit their current understanding that actually causes an uneasiness or unsettledness that they can't ignore, so they have to dig in and study to find a resolution to the questions that have been raised. But oftentimes, it's life experiences occur, and they're typically painful ones, that their current understanding does not explain or resolve, and thus they dig in and search for newer answers, or better answers than their current way of understanding. My experience, if, if people don't have an interest in learning, if their minds are closed into a belief system, that does not allow for questions, does not allow for growth or development, then truth is received not in a positive way, but as a threat, a challenge to their authority or their security or their reputation or their orthodoxy. And new truth is often labeled heresy at that point. And you can see this through the history of the Reformation. As new light was advancing, those who had a previous way of understanding would often label the new truth as heresy. And the people bringing the new truth are called heretics and are exterminated either literally or structurally. And how do we exterminate people structurally? By disfellowshipping them, disavowing them, removing their credentials, uh, removing them from office, slandering or ridiculing them. One of the primary beliefs that prevent the learned from accepting new light is the belief that, quote, we have the truth, unquote. And that idea typically results in setting down doctrinal litmus tests and a system of orthodoxy, a creed, a set of fundamental beliefs, and any new truth that doesn't fit inside the boundaries of the structure is denied as heresy, even if this new truth doesn't actually go against it. It may just expand or redefine the historic beliefs in new settings. The fear is if we believe something in our orthodoxy and it's not 100% accurate, then that means we're wrong. And if we're wrong on this, we could be wrong on that. And and then we don't want to get misled. We don't want to get deceived. So in order to feel good that we're in the truth, we can't allow for any expansion, development, or reframing of our historic beliefs. And so there's a real resistance to growing in truth once we've arrived at the truth. And that's why I've always taught, and we teach common reason, that God is infinite and we are finite. And for all eternity future, even in heaven, we will never become infinite God. We will always be advancing and discovering new truths that will harmonize with our previously understood truths, but we will keep growing and advancing. So we never want to arrive at the truth. We want to grow in the truth. That's what the pure in heart do. They continually seek to grow in the truth. Thus, they are lovers of the truth, 
which is contrary or uh, different than those who are lost. It's described in Thessalonians, and they're lost because, quote, they did not love the truth and thus be saved. Well, it's not that they didn't love their doctrines or didn't love their church or didn't love their, their creed or didn't love their religious rituals. They didn't love truth, and thus they couldn't be advanced or grow in the truth. An example of this would be people who love their metaphors and their symbols and their rituals, but they resist moving into the reality to which they point. Old Testament believers in Yahweh had a sanctuary system that the truth advanced toward a heavenly sanctuary with a heavenly high priest rather than an earthly sanctuary with an earthly high priest. And if you didn't accept the advancement in light, then you were left in darkness even though you were holding to something that was true. The lesson uses the example of Nicodemus and how did Jesus approach Nicodemus? How did the learned? Did Jesus pursue Nicodemus? Did he stand outside his house and hand him tracts? Did he, did he send him literature in the mail? Did he invite him to a Bible study? Did he send email links to sermons that he really likes? Did he send him YouTube videos? <laughs> or did Jesus go about revealing the truth in the community through his actions and deeds and the truth permeated to the community getting back to Nicodemus and Nicodemus was convicted by the Holy Spirit and sought Jesus out for better understanding? Uh, I think there's a lesson in that. Uh, you'll notice we don't spend a lot of time chasing down people who would consider themselves learned. We continue to try to present the truth and love to those who are interested and let that work its way through the community. Uh, if we have a relationship, if you have a relationship with somebody who is a doctoral person or a leader of some person, somebody considered the learned, their friend, their family member, then certainly engage them in conversation. Share materials with them that, that you believe would, would be beneficial to them. But it is not in my experience that it's fruitful to seek out professors and scholars to inform them of what they don't understand. <laughs> so with all this in mind, if we read the last the bottom of the pink section from last Tuesday's lesson says the following. Why must, why must we be careful of the trap of thinking that because we have the truth, which we do, <laughs> the, <laughs> the knowledge of the truth alone is enough to save? How many souls will be lost who had more than enough knowledge, even of the three angels' messages, to be saved? So their focus is that the knowledge of the truth isn't enough, but there's no question that we have the truth, and therefore we can rest satisfied in the truth that we have. But don't most people believe that they have the truth? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yes, what they believe is the truth. Does believing one have, has the truth, does that mean one has the truth? No. <clears throat> Before Damascus Road, did Saul of Tarsus believe he had the truth? Yes. Did he? No. What about Peter when Paul had to correct him about not, association, not associating with the uncircumcised fellows? Do you think Peter thought, I know I'm misrepresenting Jesus now and I'm not presenting the truth anymore? Uh, or do, do you think he thought he was doing what was right and was true? What about Luke 9:54 when James and John saw Jesus rejected and asked if they should call fire down from heaven to destroy the people? Do you think they believed their request was based on truth? So the lesson says that we have the truth. And they specifically mention the truth of the three angels. But does our church organization present the truth of the three angels or has that truth been replaced with a counterfeit? Ellen White says the following, see what you think about this, if you agree or don't. It is a fact that we have the truth, and we must hold with tenacity to the positions that, can, to positions that cannot be shaken. We must not look with suspicion upon any new light which God may send and say, 
Really? We cannot see that we need any more light than the old truth, which we have hitherto received, and in which we are settled. While we hold to this position, the testimony of the true witness applies to our case, its rebuke, and knowest thou, and knowest thou not, knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. Those who feel rich and increased with goods and in need of nothing are in a condition of blindness as their true condition before God, and they know it not. Or this quote, greater light shines upon us than shone upon our fathers. We cannot be accepted or honored of God in rendering the same service or doing the same works that our fathers did. In order to be accepted and blessed of God as they were, we must imitate their faithfulness and zeal, improve our light as they improve theirs, and do as they would have done had they lived in our day. We must walk in the light which shines upon us, otherwise that light will become darkness. What do these statements mean and do you agree? Is this, is this true, these, what's being described, this process of truth unfolding, this light becoming darkness? Do you understand what that means? How does light become darkness? In A.D. 5, in A.D. 5, when Christ was two years old or three years old, was it true that the Messiah was soon to be revealed in Israel? In AD 5, was it true that Messiah was soon to be revealed in Israel? Yes. 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 That the Savior of the world was coming to fulfill the promise given to Adam, Eve, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that a Savior was coming. Was that, was that true, that he, he was coming in human form and was about to be revealed to the world? Was that true yes. in AD 5? Yes. Since AD 33, after his rejection, crucifixion, death, resurrection, and ascension into heaven, is it still light? Is it still true that Messiah is going to be born in Israel and that the Messiah is yet to come? Is that still true? No. So if you're looking for that truth today, you're in darkness because you didn't advance in the truth. It was a true light for a people at time. Today, that light is darkness for anybody who believes it. You're also in denial. That's my point. Yes, you're not actually accepting the light that is shining today. You're living in light that was true for a different time in a different place under different people. If you haven't, and I'm going to suggest that can happen with any of the messages. If you haven't read our magazine, The Final Message of Mercy to the World, The Three Angels, I would encourage you to do so for we go into great detail, detail revealing what we understand to be the unfolding light on, the, on these distinct messages and the root cause of the difference between how we see it and how it is often presented within Adventist circles is how one understands God's law. That's the root cause. If you understand God's law to be imposed, rules like humans make up, then interpretations of Scripture, including the three angels, go down a certain path, a legal path, a path that creates a God that functions like a creature, a, a false god, a modern-day Baal worship, which is what is taught most around the circle. But if you return to worshiping the Creator as the message calls us to do and understand His laws are design laws, then one reads the three angels as they're supposed to be read in God's final warning of how reality works and what happens to those who reject Him and His design laws. And the high points of the messages are these. The central thread of the three angels is one of worship. Who are you worshiping? Are you worshiping the creator, the eternal good news about a creator God, or are you worshiping a creature foisting himself off in place of the creator? This is the central message. The first angel focuses on the eternal good news, which is about God, that he's not like what Satan alleges him to be. He is the God of creation, whose laws are the design protocols uh, that life are constructed upon, and we're called back to worship him as creator and stop worshiping a creature in his place. And let's give glory to God for the hour in human history has come for people to finally make a right judgment about who God is. But if you worship a creature, then you misread that entire message and you say, oh, no, the creature that we worship who makes laws like humans do is now having a tribunal and the hour when he's going to judge everybody has come. When we recognize the truth about God, 
then we realize the system impose, of imposed law with all of the various permutations of a, and the punishing God is the fallen system of confusion of Babylon with over 41,000 different Christian groups all arguing this doctrinal belief of that doctrinal belief of this Bible text or that Bible text. And we are called to come out of that confused system and return to worshiping the creator and understanding his design laws. And when you understand his design laws, there's instant harmony and agreement, regardless of our backgrounds, because we all agree that if you jump off a building, you're going to fall. We all agree that if you eat unhealthy foods, you get unhealthy consequences. We have, And we all agree that if you worship a false god, that you're corrupted by that process. And so when we come back to design law, there's unity among people. But we are worshiping an imperial God with lots of different rules. We have to find the right rules and have the right interpretation, the right doctrine. So we all argue with each other because we're worshiping creature rather than a creator. We're called to come out of that kind of worship. But if you don't do that, if you instead prefer the imposed laws that men make up and project them back up onto God and worship a God who's the source of inflicted pain and suffering, then by the law of worship, by beholding we become changed, we become like these false creature gods we worship and are marked in our characters, foreheads, or our works, hands, to be like these beastly gods we worship. And via the law of liberty, we are set free to reap that which was sown into our hearts and minds by ourselves in refusing the truth and holding to the falsehoods. As God gives people freedom and lets them go to reap the results of their own choices he, and stops using his power to protect them from what their own choices are doing to them. And this is known as God's wrath. And his wrath is filled. The cup of his wrath is filled. He lets people go. And when God no longer shields people, they reap the suffering that unremedied sin brings when via the law of love and truth, they stand in God's life-giving glory. And they have the full weight of truth weigh upon their hearts and minds. And they see what they have chosen for themselves and the harm that they have caused themselves and others. And they're overcome with guilt and shame and can no longer hide from the reality of what they have chosen to become. This is what God is telling. This is how reality works. Nothing in these messages are imperial legal or penal. They're all descriptions of God's character of love and his design law methods worked out. Any questions about that? All right, so let's jump into Lesson 10, which is Mission to the Unreached, Part 1. And the first two paragraphs in Sunday's lesson reads, The city of Athens was given over to idols. Knowing the history of his own people and their proclivity, despite endless warnings to idolatry, Paul was upset at all the idols he found in Athens as well. No question, Paul was motivated by compassion for the Athenians, who uh, would die in their sins if they did not learn of the true God. Today, our cities are full of idols, even though they're less obvious than what Paul saw. And unfortunately, many believers are fully capable of walking through a city without reacting in the least to, the idol, to its idols. Paul, though, was tuned in to the Holy Spirit enough to respond. Out of step with some, of, some other believers who still didn't grasp the gospel was for all the world, Paul knew that God wanted the Athenians to be saved along with everyone else. He understood that the global mission concept was to take the gospel to those who were entirely unreached, including idol-worshiping pagans, as well as the philosophers who filled the streets of Athens. What idols fill our cities today? People. People worship, you know, movie stars, singers, or whatever. Bombs. Our phones, yeah. Money. <laughs> money. Homes. Phones, money, other people. What was Lucifer's original sin? Pride. Wanting to be like Pride. Ezekiel twenty-eight seventeen. Your heart became proud on account of your beauty, and you corrupted your wisdom because of your splendor. Isaiah fourteen, twelve to fourteen. How have you fallen from heaven, O morning star, son of the dawn? You have said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the mount of assembly, on the utmost heights of the sacred mountain of the, or, or the mountain of the north. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. This is self-centeredness, pride, arrogance, narcissism, self-worship. This is Lucifer's, he replaced worship of God with adoration and advancement and exaltation of self. 
And what do you think is the root of all idol worship? Is it possible that all idol worship is a form of self-worship? That we make gods in our own image and idolize the power, the attributes, the longing to be like that which we are projecting and producing to somehow claim the power for ourselves in some way. Or we project out the negative attributes of self that we want to deny, so we place them on some false deity and try to appease that deity. What are your thoughts? Is it possible all idol worship is some form of self-worship? Well, the law of worship comes into play. By beholding, we become changed. We become like that which we admire, watch, esteem, read, and worship. Jeremiah wrote, Jeremiah 2.5, they worshipped worthless idols and became worthless themselves. What happens when we worship anything other than God, including self? What happens? It deteriorates. Yeah. That's right. It's the design law. We actually, we are the highest created beings on planet Earth. There's nothing we can worship and develop in advance. This is why God says, "Thou shalt know the gods before me." He wants us to grow to the highest pinnacles of development. But if you have a legal model, well, God said, "Don't worship anything else." And if you do, you get in legal trouble, and God is required to punish you for breaking His rules. No, if you worship anything else, you actually harden your heart, work your character, sear your conscience, diminish your capacity for discernment and understanding. You become more self-centered, more evil and corrupt if you worship anything other than God. This is what we read about in Romans chapter 1. And I'm going to read Romans 1. And I want as we read this to compare, do you see what, was, what Paul described happening in Rome is happening in our communities, in our nation, around the world today. Starting in verse 18, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. What is described in this first paragraph? Design law, reality, nature, God's eternal qualities he built into the natural world, and they govern how reality operates. And men are without excuse for not understanding these basic principles of life and death and how things work. All one has to do is open their eyes to consider the evidence, and they can learn truth. So no one has an excuse for not knowing it. But the wicked, those who don't love God or others, but who love self, reject truth. They deny it. They do everything they can to suppress it and hide it. And God surrenders them to their choices. They make gods in their own image, gods who make up rules and use power to inflict punishment on rule breakers. He lets them go to reap what they've chose, and they sow into their own minds, hearts, characters, these corrupt principles. And, and God lets them experience that. And lets them go. And that's known as God's wrath. So notice the next verses. For although God knew, for although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. What's being described here? The law of worship. The law of worship, yes. They don't like the truth about God, so they replace it with things that they make up themselves with their own hands and worship the creature rather than the creator, and they become foolish, and their thinking becomes futile. They cannot figure things out because they don't know how reality works because they deny reality, but by replacing facts, truth, and objective design laws with fantasy, make-believe, made-up ideas, their own preferences and ways of thinking, like gender is a social construct, <laughs> purposeful and intentional choices to deny reality, facts, and truth, and lead people to live a vir in a virtual world, a fake world, a world no longer governed by God but by the father of lies. 
That's what, what Paul's describing. Do you see this happening in the world today? The Bible is making the case that idol worship corrupts the mind, perverts the character, makes one foolish, makes the thinking futile, and it does this because of the law of worship. This is neurobiologic reality. We will change our neurobiologic structure, our belief system, our attitudes, our character based on what we choose to esteem, value, and worship, what we find worthy. When you replace reality with fantasy, with falsehood, with imaginary virtual make-believe concepts and worldviews, by the law of worship, you are changed by that process. And that's what's happening, and that's why their minds became dark and depraved and futile. It's also the law of sowing and reaping and the law of truth at play as well. It's not just that's the right. law of worship. It's numerous design laws are at play in, in this uh, example. Well said. So we look at those who worship idols made of stone and metal as primitive. We think, oh, those primitive people back there worshiping an idol made out of stone or metal. Okay, consider these words from Ellen White from Faith I Live By. See if you agree with them. Thousands have a false conception of God and his attributes. They are verily serving a false god as were the servants of Baal. Are we worshiping the true God as he is revealed in his word, in Christ, in nature? Or are we adoring some philosophical idol enshrined in his place? God is the God of truth. Justice and mercy are the attributes of his throne. He is the God of love, of pity, of tender compassion. Thus he is represented in his Son, our Savior. He is the God of patience and long-suffering. If such is the being whom we adore and to whose character we are seeking to assimilate, we are worshiping the true God. Do you agree with this? Absolutely. We have power over what we believe. But what we believe holds power over us. And if we believe lies, especially lies about God, we are damaged by those beliefs. And idol worship doesn't have to include physical idols made of wood, stone, or metal. They can be conceptual ones, false ideas about God. And all those who worship any false God, even if they call that God Jesus Christ, but believe that that being functions like the evil one and they attribute to him the character of an authoritarian deity who uses rules to and coercive power to inflict punishment, they're not worshiping Jesus. Their minds become damaged. They're thinking futile. These will be the people that Jesus himself described in Matthew 7, 22, that will come to him at the end of time and said, but Lord, we did all these things in your name, even perform miracles in your name. And he says, get ye hence, ye workers of iniquity, I never knew you. We weren't friends. Continue on with Romans 1. Paul says, therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. What does God do with his power to those who reject him, who prefer lies, who prefer the lusts of this world? He gives them up. He ceases using power. He stops intervening to prevent the harm their actions bring upon themselves. He doesn't actually use his power to cause the harm. He's been holding it back in mercy to give them opportunities to repent. And if they insist and insist and insist, then he stops using power to prevent the damage that their own actions are causing. They damage themselves and they end up worshiping and serving the creature, the fallen angel known as Satan, if they don't repent and return to worshiping the true God. And then Paul goes on to say this. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with, with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their perversion. This is not talking about people born with various biologic conditions that have occurred because sin is in the world that caused them to have same-sex attraction. It's not talking about that. It is describing people who are born heterosexual 
but through lies, through the rejection of God, through false worship, through indulging worshiping false philosophies, through porn, through propaganda, media influences, believing lies, and all forms of narcissistic adoration damage their natural desires and exchange their natural desires for unnatural ones, for desires they never had until they damage themselves through the perverted worship practices, through esteeming, valuing, choosing, and finding worthy of emulation that which is perverse. Think of this truth. Think of what it says. They exchanged and they abandoned the natural. Can a person with a blue shirt exchange it for a red shirt if they don't actually have a blue shirt? <laughs> Paul is talking about people who have natural heterosexual desire. And then sometime later, through this process of perverse worship, became inflamed with lust they didn't naturally have before that time and exchanged them. Paul is not describing various conditions with which people are born, but in which they had no choice. Like the man who was born blind and the disciples said, who sinned that this man was born blind, him or his parents? And Jesus said, neither. Blindness is in the world because of sin, but neither one of these people sinned to cause the blindness. It was not sin for that man to be blind or to live as a blind man because that's the way he came into the world. However, it would be sin to willfully choose to engage in activities that cause blindness to people with good vision. And this is what is happening in our society today. People are corrupting themselves by rejecting the truth about God and worshiping the creature, the created things, indulging self, and they are becoming inflamed with all kinds of destructive lusts. They deny the most obvious truths in nature itself that there are males and females and men cannot become women and women cannot become men. They deny these truths. They're so perverted in their thinking that some people are now seeking to become animals, what they call furries. Others are claiming that they're not even human. They're astral beings and star people living in human bodies. And this only happens as minds are disconnected from objective reality, truth, facts, and evidence. What is happening in our society today? Listen to what Paul writes. Furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over to a depraved mind to do that which ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They're gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They are senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of others who practice them. Do you not see that's a description of our world today? They glorify everything that is godless and corrupt and evil. They they slander all the corrupt stuff of gossiping and slandering and God-hating and insolence is constantly just a slurry of garbage across the internet and the media constantly. The rejection of God, the teaching of godless evolution, that the strongest, those with the most power, cunning, ability to exploit, manipulate, lie, deceive, they're the ones who can be exalted. They're the gods of this age. They're the ones who can can control the world and, and, and everyone should bow down and worship. They have their own truth rather than God's truth. Yes, that's what they'll say. This is my truth. It's not truth at all. This is the fantasy world in which they're crying. Hey, let's reimagine. Let's reimagine what life looks like if there's no men and women. Let's reimagine what life looks like if blah, 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 blah. In other words, and you understand, if you're reimagining, you're no longer in reality. That's called fantasy. Let's create fantasy. Let's pretend the emperor has beautiful clothes when he's not wearing anything. <laughs> And this is our society today. And anyone who says, ha, I don't see his clothes. That, that, that emperor is naked. 
gets crucified in the media today. The rejection of God, the teaching of the godless, evolutionary, strong, anything, ends justify the means, is corrupting the world, worshiping a false god, and the world and the people become ever more self-centered, more narcissistic, more arrogant, and corrupt. And society divides into ever more disunity, hostility, conflict, and hate. The claim is made that this is due to racism or sexism or transgenderism. But all of that is a distraction and it's a lie. Those are allegations. Those are slander. All of this conflict in society is a result and driven by the one core problem, unrestrained selfishness, narcissism, the lack of love for other people. That's why this happens. They want to destroy anyone that doesn't believe what their belief is. That's correct. Eliminate it. And they claim that it's racist or this, that, but that's all purposeful deception and misdirection to divide society on false pretenses and to turn us away from God, the source of love that will actually bring us back into the unity that's inherent in the faith. According to the U.S. Bureau of Justice statistics, the rate of white-on-white crime, white-on-white crime is 12 per 1,000, where the rate rate of black-on-white crime is 3 per 1,000. White-on-white crime is four times higher than black-on-white crime. The rate of black-on-black crime is 16.5 per 1,000, and the rate of white-on-black crime is 2.8. Black-on-black crime is five times higher than white-on-black crime. Did you know that in our society in America, you are four to five times more likely to experience crime at the hands of someone of your own race than someone of another race? Did you know that? Yet, that's not how most people feel. Most people feel more threatened from somebody of another race. Why? Because of propaganda, the lies, the misinformation designed to divide our people from a united states or a united group of people who operate on common values to a divided people. And this happens because God is rejected. And when God is rejected and taken out of the home, out of the schools, out of society, then self is worshipped. And when self is worshipped, we fear things that are not like self and we're more vulnerable to identify very superficial things like skin color as a reason why those other people are a threat to us because they're not like us. Understand this very clearly. We do not have a race problem in this country. We have a sin problem in this country, in this world. Jesus, speaking about this time in human history, said, sin will be rampant everywhere and the love of many will grow cold. This is the problem. People don't love each other. They fear each other. The Apostle Paul said to Timothy, there will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Do we see that in society today? And studies have shown that since the 1970s, every entering college class scores higher on tests of narcissism than the class class before them. Mm -hmm. Rating scales of self-centeredness, arrogance, pride go up. The me-first mentality. What's destroying love? Well, the Bible teaches in John 4.18, there is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. Love and fear are inversely proportional. As one goes up, the other goes down. As love increases, fear decreases. As fear increases, though, love decreases. The more we fear, the more we experience uh, and see the world around us as threatening, whether it's real or imagined, and then we take actions to make ourselves feel safe rather than searching ourselves to identify and overcome our own deficiencies of character, 
fear focuses our attention on the potential threats in our community and we begin identifying threats in our community and taking actions to make ourselves stronger and to make others weaker so we can be safer against those people we identify as threats. And the love for our fellow man grows cold. And then the question is, why is fear on the rise then? I would like to suggest several factors. Historically in America, the national consciousness, and you were old, some of you as old as I am will remember this, and, and look around society today. Look at what's happening in the schools today. What I'm about to share with you was, was part of the bedrock community social fabric of, of regardless of your belief, regardless of your faith, regardless of what part of the country you're in, what I'm about to share with you was a social construct held dear in America. It's no longer there. It's not there anymore. But in America, the, the national consciousness focused historically on three other than self virtues that were considered so vital it was worthy to sacrifice yourself for. And those three other than, than self virtues were God, family, country. Amen. Do you remember that? Yes. 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 And all three of those were considered more important than the self. Ask not what your country can do for you, but ask what you can do for your country, John F. Kennedy famously said. Always holding up a larger, something larger than the self, worthy of self-sacrifice. God, family, country, and in that order. But society today is taught there is no God. Families are dysfunctional, abusive, and exploitive, and, and they should not be trusted to raise children. In fact, a family cannot raise a children. It takes a village to raise a child. <laughs> and in fact, that is why our school systems should raise our child and not the children, and why parents should be excluded from the curriculum of what we tell our kids, and why school officials should provide gender-affirming care, because parents cannot be trusted. The village should raise the children. And our nation is an evil exploiter and enslaver of minorities, and therefore our nation cannot be trusted. Understand in society today, the historical three big pillars, God, family, and country, have been completely overthrown to the, this, these last several generations. Thus, the mindset of altruism, of love, of higher purpose is replaced with a sense of fear, of isolation, of aloneness, of, of no one you can trust, of threats everywhere. And when there's nothing greater than self, no higher power, no institutions can be trusted, fear increases, and each person becomes an island to themselves, seeing threats that all around them, frantically struggling to survive, breaking up from the united people groups, the United States, living on common principles of civil and religious liberty to racial, religious, political, and ethnic factions, uh, identifying those who struggle with the same tr struggles, against all the other evil in the world and seeking power for our enclave or our political faction so that we can force everybody else to comply. And we devolve into further infighting. This is further inflamed by social media isolation, fear-inducing propaganda and constant manipulation of events and manipulation of events, not just a manipulation of the storyline in the media, but the events themselves, like manipulating and enter, uh, increased energy prices artificially, artificially elevating food prices, suggesting and artificially creating various shortages, all to incite more fear, uh, artificially creating various wars, creating man-made diseases, yeah. the made-up climate crisis. Amen. Restrictions on various liberties because of all these threats. Understand what is happening is true evil. The, the Bible describes it this way. At the end of time, Satan goes around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. What's a lion's roar do? It incites fear. The roar itself does not cause harm. It makes one frightened. So they freeze, and that's what's happening. All this stuff you're hearing is the roar of the evil lion to make people afraid so they freeze and tell me what to do. Tell me what to do. I just want to be safe. Just make me safe. <laughs> and when selfishness reigns, love dies. People exploit those around them. So understanding all of this, do you think I've made this up or can you see it as I lay it out there? Yeah, I, can see it. I can see it. Absolutely. 
So how do we reach the ungodly people in the world who are being so propagandized and manipulated, who no longer believe in God, who no longer value family, who no longer believe this country is worth supporting? How do you reach people who only live for self? Perfect love casts out love. fear. Yeah. We have to become the purveyors of love. Following Christ's method. We, we can't just use words. We have to use our our actual character of, of uh, thankfulness for this season, of, of love for fellow man. And uh, actually, what I'm thinking of now is that, uh, if I'm not mistaken, uh, Ellen White actually cautioned against ministers going immediately to seminary because they needed a practical experience with people first before they tried to hone their, their uh, use of words to the point that only an institution that they have subscribed to or that has sponsored them will even use them. So let me, let me, let me pick up what you said there, Ken. Practical. You use the word practical. This means how reality works. It, it has an actual application to make real positive changes to bring health and healing to people's lives because it's going to be based on how reality works. It can't be made up or make-believe or fantasy or, or virtual. It has to be real. That's what practical is. It actually works. And so it requires us to return to worshiping our creator, to understand his design laws, to understand how reality itself works, the God of reality. And so as we go to actually minister to people, identifying their, uh, getting to know them, identifying their struggles, bringing real world answers to teach them how reality works, answering the questions that mystify them because it makes no sense. And it makes no sense when you live in fantasy, it doesn't, but if you teach them reality and predictable, reliable um, uh, laws of God that they can make decisions upon, it, it, it brings peace, it brings healing. But if we go to evangelize the world, trying to replace their fantasy worldview with a different fantasy worldview, how's that going to work out? It's uphill. <laughs> when we present the fantasy of a God that works with laws that function like every government of the world, who is the source of inflicted pain, uh, a God that must be appeased with the blood of a human sacrifice, do such false God concepts actually work to remove fear? No. That would make you more fearful even. No. That's exactly right. So it has no power. And this is why they have a form of godliness but no power because they're taking this imperialistic, penal legal, human constructed, Baal version of God to the world when they evangelize in this way. And this is why this special message for this time is calling people back to worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and all that in them is. And that's only done when we really return to understand his laws or the design laws. Whenever you say it has no power, it seems to me it actually has such a destructive power. It doesn't have the healing power. And the list of the various fear mongers that, that you are going through it seems like the common denominator is that practicing of power over, not power to or power with. Thank you for that clarification, because you're correct. It doesn't have, that a form of godliness has no power. Uh, in that context, I think Paul is speaking of the power to heal, the power to save, the power to redeem, the power to cleanse from sin. But you're right, it does have the power to harm, the power to injure, the power to corrupt. So you're right, there is a power there, and it's a destructive power, but, but there is no healing power in the false gospel. So thank you for that clarification. The lesson, uh, Monday's lesson, asks us to read Acts 17, 18 through 21. This is from the Good News Translation. It says, certain Epicurean and Stoic teachers also debated with him, that's Paul. Some of them asked, what is this ignorant show-off trying to say? Others answered, he seems to be talking about foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching about Jesus and the resurrection. So they took Paul, brought him before the city council, the there Pegasus, and said, we would like to know what this new teaching is that you are talking about. Some of the things we hear you say sound strange to us, and we would like to know more. Uh, we would like to know what they mean. 
For all the citizens of Athens and the foreigners who live there like to spend their time telling and hearing the latest new things. So Epicureanism and Stoicism. Epicureanism is the system of philosophy founded in 307 BC based on the teachings of Epicurus, an ancient Greek philosopher. It is the philosophy based on materialism and reduction uh, and is reductionistic, meaning the idea that all things are caused naturally and can have a natural explanation. Its primary motivation was the avoidance of pain and fear, which is supposed to result, if you avoid pain and fear, then it results in the experience of one's greatest pleasure. It advocated for a simple life removed from politics and many societal struggles, seeking tranquility and the avoidance of mental stress and bodily pain. So the Epicureans wanted to live out in nature, live away from the politics and the hustle and bustle, and by avoiding pain and fear, they would then experience the highest forms of personal pleasure. Stoicism is the philosophy which was taught that virtue is the highest good, and the practice of virtue, which means uh, to um, is the means to experience well-ordered, healthy, and happy life. Stoics advocated for virtues such as courage and temperance and living in harmony with nature. Such things as wealth, health, power, and position were only means upon which virtue could act to improve the world. So that's Epicureans and the Stoics were, were the big philosophical groups in Athens at the time. Who, Which group would, would have a more natural um, alignment with Paul, do you think? The Stoics would have a more natural alignment with Paul. I, I think that's true. And the Epicureans would be more naturally opposed to him, like they were opposed to the, the Stoics. What would you say would be the greatest obstacle for the Epicureans and the Stoics in, in accepting what Paul was bringing? Resurrection. Transcendence. Something, something they can't see. So I'm tying this back for me, and I, I don't disagree with any of that. I, I tie this back to the roots that we talked about in, in all idol worship. Once the, I think the root of all idol worship is a form of self-worship, a self-form of narcissism, of pride, of Lucifer's original sin. And so with, for me, I'm thinking perhaps the greatest obstacle is a willingness to surrender self to an intelligence higher than self. These guys pride themselves on their intellectual acumen, and they love to debate the viewpoints of others and find the flaws in those things to make themselves feel smarter and better than those around them. And Paul's teaching ultimately would require them to surrender self to a power higher than self. Also, if Epicurean was avoidance of pain, it is uncomfortable to have someone disagree with your point of view. Uh, so it seems like that would be a, an element of avoidance for them as well. Picking up on what you just said, that's exactly right. And, and what is the conversion process? When, when the Holy Spirit moves on an unconverted heart to bring them to conversion, is that process of conversion painless or painful, emotionally speaking? Pain, pain. This is the valley of the shadow of death. This is where we have to face the worst in ourselves, where the Bible talks about crucifying self or dying to self. And so if our motive is to avoid all discomfort and pain, then we will avoid the actual conversion process. And this would actually be anathema to us to actually have to face one's worst foibles in order to overcome them. But the beautiful part is kind of like an abscess. Once you finally let go of that and go through that brief, painful experience, the freedom, the relief, the joy on the other side is so immense. So encouraging people to uh, lean into the discomfort adds better on the other side. Amen. Like childbirth, I think. The Bible compares it to childbirth. That's exactly correct. That's exactly correct. But but you have to actually get over to the other side to experience the joy and the peace and the healthier living. Amen. And that's where our witness comes through. And we can talk to people about the struggles we had before and after. And they can see and experience the peace that we have. But that requires true conversion. Can people be converted to a system of religion rather than converted in heart? Yes. 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 
And if they're converted to a system of religion rather than conversion of heart, what witness do they give about conversion to those who are still living in fear and self-centeredness, guilt, and shame? They don't see anything worth converting to. Right. It's a living hell. Much of the religions of the world create those control systems. And I think you find some of the philosophers of the world, like um, Marx and Nietzsche and some of these other people, criticizing you know religion as the opiate of the masses because they saw how the, the religion used on unconverted people, where, where it wasn't actually transferring the heart as true Christianity does, results in that very thing. It results in a system that actually anesthetizes people from thinking, gives them a system of false security, and ultimately manipulates and controls the masses. One of the key reasons, though, for mentioning that this morning is so that anyone who is experiencing in their life that dissonance or pain or struggle, that they can be encouraged to still seek truth, that once they have found the true heart of God and that healing, then that part is freeing. So one of the key tells in, in my own life is to listen to that internal dissonance and continue to seek truth. That's well said, and I encourage people in my practice, when, when they find something that they're uneasy and their emotions are stirring and they don't feel comfortable, to, that's when they step back prayerfully and say, Holy Spirit, lead me into the truth. What is the truth that, that I need to follow at this point? What is the path of righteousness or the path of truth that I need to walk down? Help me identify the sources of this discomfort, this conflict, and the truth will set you free if you ultimately stay faithful to the pursuit of that truth. You won't be left and abandoned in darkness. It's when the darkness is or the, the lies seem to be more emotionally comforting at some point that people will avoid the truth because the truth is, is, is not necessarily always pleasant in the moment to face. And I saw a meme recently. It said something like this. It won't be exact. But it said, if the truth makes you uncomfortable, don't blame the truth. Blame the lie that made you comfortable. Amen. <laughs> yeah. You also have to be careful with... And right now I'm halfway through a book on ethnobotany and shamanism, shaman research in South America. A guy went down there and is doing research. And one of the things that's brought out in his book is the negative impact of missionaries to the local culture and the local lifestyle. Now we have to be careful when we're bringing this in. Are we improving people or are we conditioning them to what we think they should be doing? And is this conditioning positive for them or positive not? Because it's clear that well-meaning missionaries that have gone into other areas have actually had a very negative impact, not only in the lifestyle, but the health and philosophy and living conditions of the indigenous people of those regions. So let's follow up on that, because that's a very interesting point. Do you think that a missionary coming into any part of the world, if they bring consistently the design laws of God and teach people how to live in harmony with the principles of life and health that they will bring harm if they do that. No, but you also have to keep in mind that you have to merge that with whatever is happening locally. Um, no, no, so let, let me finish. Let me finish. What causes the harm is when they come in with a system of beliefs that they have that they try to enforce or persuade that, that will often... Call, will often cause some violation of the very principles that life and health is based on. You can't cause harm by harmonizing with the principles of life and health. You can only cause harm by breaking those laws and principles. God's laws are always healing and restorative if we live in harmony with them. So when they come into the systems you're, you're talking about, it's because they're doing something that is actually introducing something that violates one of God's laws. That's why the harm comes. Now, we have to differentiate harm from pain. A surgeon lancing an abscess is not causing harm because there's actually an infection there that needs to be dealt with. A, a surgeon, a, an orthopedic surgeon, relocating a dislocated limb will cause harm in the action to put it back in joint, will cause pain, not harm, will cause pain, but will not cause harm as he does that. And so sometimes people identify the pain as harm, but it's not harm. And that's what Jesus meant when he said, I did not come to bring peace, but a sword uh, to cut um, 
you know, sons away from fathers and fathers away from mothers. He's talking about cutting dysfunction in families and societies and symptoms, cutting selfishness out of hearts, which only brings healing to those who accept the principles of God, but may cause family division for those who won't accept the truth and want to continue to live the old way. So I think what you said has got a lot of truth in it, but it requires a lot of differentiation and discernment. Are we bringing new rules that are causing actual breaking from God's design? Are we bringing God's design to people and they're breaking away from old systems that were harmful, but some people aren't breaking away from those old systems, so it's causing societal division? Being humble enough to assess for personal bias versus core principles of design law and how that fits. Yeah, I, I really like that, that, that comment. That, that, that's got a lot, of, a lot of meat to dig into. Let's go ahead and close with prayer. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your truth, for your love, for the constancy of your care, the, the methods that you apply, the laws that you've established life to operate upon. We ask that your spirit will come to us, not only enlightening our mind, but transforming our hearts, minds, and characters, that we can live out your principles and how we treat other people so that we can advance this final message of mercy and that you will come soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen.